So we have a new episode of Legends and Leaders, and we have a legend and a leader, Ronald Wayne here. Great to have you, Ronald. We're uh, very excited. Thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. Great. So I think the best place to start is to just go a bit into your origins. And how did your, how did your passion for technology develop? Where did that come from, your passion for engineering? Well, I'll put it to you this way. Uh, during uh, Following World War II, uh, when surplus stores were overrunning with materials, I was able to buy stuff cheap, and I taught myself basic electronics. That was in the age of vacuum tubes. When transistors came in, I taught myself in a transistor logic. Integrated circuits, I did the same thing. And then worked mm -hmm. my way up from design draftsman to uh, my uh, last uh, employment, which was a 16-year stint with uh, Thor Electronics in Salinas, California, where I was their chief engineer and product development engineer. Nice. So, so when you, how did you attain the knowledge to be able to understand? Uh, was was a lot of this through schooling, or were, were you a hobbyist and in, into just building electronics? I was uh, self-taught. I bought a uh, Navy training course, and I bought a copy of the ARRL uh, Radio Relay League handbook, which uh, mm -hmm. also had a little course in it. And uh, since I was working in uh, Designing and not designing, but uh, drafting and schematics and so on. I found little circuits that I put them together and see how they behaved or huh. design these circuits or whatever. Yeah, I was a tinkerer and enjoyed every minute of it. Right. Were, were you into the Lego toy at all? Like, is it uh, when you were growing no, up? No, I shouldn't say that I was. Electronics, uh, electrical electronics, although I have uh, developed skills in, uh, in, in mechanics and so on, hydraulics and some pneumatics and that uh, helped uh, design heat sinks and so on in the various positions that I held over the years. And how did your opportunity to be involved with Atari happen? Was that because, I mean, it was a similar passion to what you already had, but were you interested in video games as well? Uh, that It didn't work exactly that way. I've been job shopping for 10 years, and okay. it was intermittent to kind of work that is. And I decided to... Uh, uh, get a permanent position. Someone suggested I get a headhunter. And, okay. uh, and the following morning, I found myself in the offices of Atari talking to uh, Nolan Bushnell and Al Alpine, the chief engineer. Right. Was it, was wow. a, it was a strange interview because Mr. Alcorn at one point said, uh, uh, draw me a circuit that shows two switches, one light bulb, either switch can turn the light on or off. I said, you're joking. I'm coming in as the chief draftsman. He said, no, no, I'm serious. I, so I did this work for him, and that was it. Went to work for, for Atari. For wow. What, did, what an interview. That's, that's quite wild. <laughs> that was Al Alcorn. He, had, uh, he and Nolan both had uh, spectacular senses of humor. <laughs> it seems like it. So, so you start working at Atari, and... You developed this system essentially to organize the inventory and to organize a lot of the schematics behind games. How did you come up with that idea and why did you see the need well, for it? I came up with the idea because when I was product development engineer at Atari, I had to design and build cabinets and enclosures and discovered that they had no purchase parts documentation system. Huh. I went in and uh, talked to Al Alcorn thinking I'm going to get my head handed when I told him 
I said, you got a half million dollars of inventory because there's no system out there. It might just as well be in concrete. You're never going to get that stuff out of there. We have to do something. He says, no, we don't. You're the chief draftsman. You do it. And <laughs> I almost lost my upper set. I, I, <laughs> so I sat down. <laughs> I took the next three months and designed a complete documentation system. It's similar to some similar systems that I had done uh, for other people early on. Right. And, and so you, you're working, you put together this whole system. Now the company's saving money and they're able to innovate. Um, what was your most memorable experience overall working at Atari throughout the years? Uh, I have to say, <laughs> Nolan Bushnell was very impressed with the system I put in. And he gave me another assignment. He sent hmm. me to Europe for three months as their international field service engineer to okay. these potential distributors of Atari equipment. To be candid, it was a job that could have been done by an educated monkey. It didn't take long before I realized huh. that the whole thing was a perk. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the work I'd done. That, that had to be the high point of my employment at the time. <laughs> so, so when you were there, I mean, I did a bit of reading and there was some sort of argument that happened between Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak. Why did you decide to get involved in that in that okay. argument? Jobs was not a, an employee of Atari. He was a consultant. He was essentially marketing the games that Wozniak had designed uh, to Nolan Bushnell. Okay. And anybody who designed a game, uh, that design and that person came across my desk. So I became quite chummy with uh, uh, Jobs. And at that time, he became somewhat enamored with me because of my background and uh -huh. uh, viewed me as a kind of mentor. So he walked into my office one day and said he was forming a company with uh, this guy, uh, Steve Wozniak. And uh, the problem was that Woz was very parental about his circuits. Okay. And, uh, asked, and wanted to reserve the right to use those circuits in other places. Uh, well, <laughs> that's not, not good form if you, <laughs> you're not going right. to put circuitry out to the rest of the world free, free as air. So anyway, I said, sure, I'll talk with him. So I uh, told him to come to my apartment, sit down, chat. I'll, I'll get him to understand. It took about 10 minutes. <laughs> Wozniak, uh, Jobs, rather, was many things, but Diplomat was never one of them. Huh. Uh, uh, you know what a Diplomat is. That's a guy who can tell you yeah. to go to home you, in a way that makes you look forward to the trip. Okay, huh. well, he didn't have that skill. I, I had to some degree. So I got Waz to understand. He picked it up on the first bounce, and that was the job. Jumped up and said, "That's it. We're going to form a company." And that's how Apple was born. Wow! So it was it was that quick, huh? A matter of a couple of days. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And so so now the company is essentially beginning, and um, you know it's you essentially put together this this document. And it's now, you know, now that everyone's partners in it, what were the first steps of, of starting the company and building the product? Well, building the product and the engineering was all done by Jobs and Wozniak. I had no part of that. But mm -hmm. I drew up the schematics, did the documentation, did the, uh, their first logo, which I recognized was not a 20th century logo. The Newton logo uh, was, uh, I, I had caught some of Wozniak's whimsy, whimsical nature and uh -huh. I did an allegory uh, in the form of this Newton logo, which, to my amazement, has become a worldwide icon. Yeah. So, uh, it was it was just a lot of fun stuff. Really, we, 
we had no idea that we were initiating a turning point in uh, modern uh, mm. uh, computer technology. So, Ronald, did you think that these two guys, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, that they were these in, this innovative group and trying to do something different? Did you think that they, they were onto something then, or you were like, oh, kind of no, thought? They, I have to tell you, they had, I knew at the time they had the right product at the right time. Right. And it was bound to be successful. Of course, nobody could have anticipated that it would wind up a $2 trillion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I knew it was the right product at the right time. But my passion was not uh, uh, computers, it wasn't to be candid, it was slot machines. I wanted to design new slot machines. Then uh, there were other uh, reasons why I slipped away. Principally, the main reason I slipped away, I think, was because Jobs had seen the documentation system that I'd done for Atari uh, and uh, decided that, uh, I'm sure he decided that I was going to be the documentation manager. Now, I right. Development guy in my own right, and I didn't see spending the next 20 years of my life shuffling papers in a back room. <laughs> so that was a, a pretty strong incentive for me to depart the scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and he tried bringing you back a couple of times right throughout the year. And for the same reason, I declined each time. Mm -hmm. And so early on in the design of the product, right, there was a point where I believe you had insight into having the motherboard be horizontal. Where, where did that come from? Okay, Jobs approached me after I had separated myself from the enterprise. This was several months later. They were working apparently on the Apple II. Right. And, and uh, he hadn't told me that they had come up with, I think, $25 million. I went huh. in Arthur Rock, a finder, and found $25 million for them to set up the Apple Corporation. I didn't know anything about that. I thought mm -hmm. these guys were just like they were before without two nickels to rub together. Huh. So I did a, uh, a design that was uh, horizontal uh, where you would put the monitor on top and the keyboard was integral. And mm -hmm. uh, it, that actually evolved to the uh, Macintosh. That is that geometry had not been used before and, and they evolved it into the Macintosh. Mm -hmm. Did you think that the world of, of computing today, um, did, did you think it was going to go much more mobile focused? Like now we have phones, we have all these different mobile devices. Did you think that was the, the trend then anyways? Wozniak is the most creative as well as the most gracious man I've ever met. And uh, I had no doubts that he was going to do wonderful things. And it was Wozniak that this circuit design for all of this stuff. Or at least for lunch But I wasn't in the corporation. I had nothing to do with it. So I right. don't know the inner, inner operations of the corporation mm -hmm. and how these things evolve. But my guess is that he had a handle on a chunk of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And what inspired you to put the, to have the Newton like design in, uh, in the logo, like even with the apple falling? Like what, what was the inspiration for that specific image? The apple falling was the, was the trigger that uh, led to that Newton idea. Right. And then, of course, there was uh, a little phrase that I put in across the bottom of the last line from my uh, Wordsworth poem, the mind forever voyaging through strange seas of thought alone. I thought that fit perfectly. Well, if you're going to do that, you have to do a, a 19th century stylization with ribbon names and so on. That's how that came about. Hmm. Pen and ink. Right. Yeah. It's definitely something that is embedded in history in the history of the company. And uh, 
become one of the most iconic logos of all time, um, for sure. Yeah. So I'd love to just move Ronald into a different portion. Now you're working on, you just, you just finalized a new book and about called counterfeit trust that focuses on inflation, on the tracking of inflation. You've been following it since, you know, quite early on, um, even uh, following the 1944 occurrence of when we removed the gold standard and all the way to now, and you've discussed some, uh, some of the solutions as well. So I'd just love to hear from you a bit as to why do you think it's important that it, right now inflation, um, there's a solution to the to inflation and that we get to this point where we can stop the money being devalued. Unfortunately, it's a monumental task to do that because what they did at Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, because of the fact that World War II was the most uh, expensive war in human history, right. half of the 40-odd 40, 40 nations that formed the Allied Nations had already gone bankrupt. In those days, You, when you say you couldn't fight a war without money, what they really meant in those days was you can't fight a war without gold. Right. And these countries had gone bankrupt. What were they going to do? They, so these eight nations sent 700 representatives to Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, to decide what they were going to do about the problem. Well, their decision was to take the world off the gold standard for the first time in 3,000 years. And huh. the net result was, as predicted by Adam Smith in his book, Wealth of Nations, published in 1779, uh, any country that goes to fiat money, money by decree, money because government says it's money and not because mm -hmm. it has any substance behind it, any country that does that is going to suffer monetary inflation, monetary mm -hmm. collapse, economic collapse, and possibly political collapse along with it. Well, 20 years after the book was published, a major country in Europe actually did that. That was France. They had their revolution, got rid of the monarchy, and then discovered the country had no money. So what they did was what they went to their Ashon, their paper notes, and uh, uh, everybody else was running on gold and silver money, and they were running on paper. And they said, well, don't worry about it. We'll uh, back our money with um, uh, confiscated land. Now, how you divide up an acre of land among five franc notes, I don't know. That was their story. And, of course, it made no difference. It was fiat money for all practical purposes. And uh, over a span of 10 years, they had several monetary crises. And finally, the whole house of cards came down. Mm. And even Robespierre himself wound up on the guillotine, uh, <laughs> founder of the revolution. Uh, and all they did was to set themselves up for Napoleon. And of course, Napoleon came in watching all this and says, hereafter, France will pay its debts in gold or not at all. Uh, well, France didn't have any gold. Well, that's all right. We'll pay our debts with Finland's gold and Norway's gold and, <laughs> and so on. <laughs> Proceeded to conquer Europe, which worked fine until he tried to conquer Russia in winter. Mm -hmm. And that was the end of the Napoleonic era. Huh. And Ronald, do you think that in 1944, could they have come up with a different solution instead of, all right, you know, we need to have more money in circulation. Let's get rid of the gold standard. Was there something else they could have put in place then that would have prevented the inflation today? They made only one mistake, and I'm not looking at any villains in this story. This is mm -hmm. people who made mistakes. And the mistake, big mistake that they made was not putting a sunset clause on it. I understand mm -hmm. why they had to go to fiat money, because they needed money to fight the war. Right. And it worked. All right. But they should have had, uh, you know, so many years after the war is over, we go back to the gold standard, and none of, the, of today's mess would ever have happened. And the only way out of this mess today, no matter what you do, 
There's only one way out, return to the gold standard. That means getting 150 countries to agree, we all have to go back on the gold again and, and all the machinations we have to do to accomplish that. It's, uh, it's a Herculean task and I'm not certain they're gonna be able to do it, which means that uh, we have a rather nasty future coming in which Hopefully the whole parts around the world can come down. And the best defense that anybody can have for themselves because government won't do it, is you better start acquiring silver dimes and quarters and squirreling them away because yesterday's money will become tomorrow's money. Fiat money will inflate itself out of existence as it always has. And people who have silver coin squirreled away will be able to buy anything or anyone they want. Mm -hmm. do, do you think that, uh, I mean, do you think that blockchain can play a part in solving the, the inflation problem like cryptocurrency or Bitcoin, any of those? Cryptocurrency is even more worthless than paper money because have you ever seen a, a Bitcoin? There's no such animal. It's all ethereal. It's even worse mm -hmm. than, than uh, uh, unredeemable paper. Because, because it's digital and... Because um, it has nothing behind it, no substance behind it. And the problem is, if you have any kind of uh, fiat currency of any kind, the big mm -hmm. problem is that the, to turn the little handle politically is politically irresistible. And the net result is you always turn the little handle too many times and inflate mm -hmm. your currency out of existence. And with Bitcoin, right. it's even worse. Nobody even knows where the center of anything is. And when do you, Ronald, when do you think that the U.S. will hit this certain point where it, it's just too much and now the currency is just rapidly, um, rapidly deflating and it, the value is just changing substantially? All right. This inflation is geometric. It's going up faster and faster and faster. For example, yeah. in the 1930s, brand new car was $600. After World War II, it was $1,200. Mm -hmm. I bought a Studebaker Avanti, the top of the line. In 1960, for $6,000. Today, mm -hmm. I just bought a Chevy Spark for $26,000. Wow. This is what happens when you are on paper money. I mean, the easiest thing to think of is the fact that nobody thinks anything paying a buck and a half for a soda pop. The same soda pop that your father would have paid 25 cents for when he was your age, and your grandfather would have paid a nickel for it. This yeah. is geometric inflation, and it's unstoppable until they return mm -hmm. to a currency that cannot be corrupted. And Ronald, if the fiat currency, let's just say hypothetically, right, the U.S. dollar was limited, and that was that certain finite amount in creation, we wouldn't have this inflation necessarily. So that's of like kind of the... That's like saying right. if everybody plays nice, the world is all fine. Uh, you have right. to play nice with paper money and nobody can it is psychologically mm -hmm. impossible so that was part of the reason like why bitcoin was created there's only 21 million finite units ever and that, uh, that that's what they that. say, but who controls it and how is right. it regulated and who knows anything about it it's, it's all done in the back room that nobody has any access to mm -hmm. right uh, it's definitely it's definitely quite you know, it's transparent, but it's also people don't know who's, you know, who's behind it or, or what yes. even is going on. Right. Yes. So do you, so if let's say this gold standard is put back in place, um, you know, what, when you, that you would solve the problem. When do you think that we could even, you know, what are even the first steps to make that happen right now? 
Like how did, what are, how do countries go about that? To get the major countries of the world, say eight, nine, ten countries, the major countries of the world, get together and form a consortium and say that they and uh, will trade only with each other in metal. Nobody else, people with fiat money, will not be able to trade with them. And one by one, these lesser countries will then go to hard currency and rebuild the thing. The chances of that happening are somewhere between slim and none, and slim's out of town. And so the current debt crisis that we have right now, it's definitely been exacerbated by a lot of different aspects. Um, what, how do you think that solving and approaching... printing press. Right. So, so you think inflation also will be the solution to the, the $30 trillion or so in debt to paying it back because of the finite money? We'll, we'll look back fondly on a time when the debt was $30 trillion. Because <laughs> it'll be $300 trillion, $900 trillion, and so on. Zimbabwe right. stuck, uh, printed out $100 trillion Zimbabwe uh, paper before the whole money supply system in Zimbabwe finally collapsed and they adopted the dollar as their national currency. This is what happens with all fiat currencies. It has never than otherwise. Mm -hmm. And since you've been following this since the beginning of like of this change in the this from the beginning because I knew what right. was coming. I'd already read Wealth of Nations and uh, when this began to happen and from then mm -hmm. on I started clocking things. All right. Here's here's the uh, the important thing to understand. Back in the days when silver and gold were money, uh, a $20 gold piece was an ounce of gold. And that ounce of uh, $20 gold piece could buy you $20 in silver coin, no matter what the combination. Right. Well, $20 in silver coin was 16 ounces of silver. The ratio, in other words, between the buying power of silver and gold was 16 to 1. That was not an arbitrary number. It was based on the fact that it was seven, 16 times easier to get silver out of the ground than to get gold out of the ground. And mm -hmm. that 16 to 1 ratio had stood for centuries. Now, once gold and silver stopped being money, for the first time in human history, silver and gold were traded under, in different markets, marketplaces under different influences. And finally, very quickly, uh, the ratio went from 16 to 1 to 80 to 1. Right now, it is 80 to 1. There are eight, requires 80 ounces of silver to buy an ounce of gold. Now, what does this mean in, in terms of practical uh, handling currency? That is, it means that gold has kept pace with inflation and has and will continue to do so. Silver will not. Silver right now is dirt cheap at 25 times pace for common silver coin. And what will happen is when uh, the roof caves in and countries are forced to go back to hard currency, uh, what will happen is that that 80 ounces of silver that it now takes to buy an ounce of gold, that 80 mm -hmm. ounces of silver will buy five ounces of gold. In other right. words, the buying power of gold would suddenly jump fivefold, whereas gold will already have kept pace with that. Right. Uh, when do you, Ronald, when? Myself yeah. Here. Yeah, I follow it. Honey, at what point in, in the next couple of years, Lex? X amount of years, do you think we'll hit this point where we have to figure out a solution? And it's just so bad in the United States specifically. Well, it's not the United mm -hmm. States. This is a worldwide phenomenon. 
Every right. country in the world is experiencing the same thing, which means that the problem is uh, countries have gone into hyperinflation before Germany after World War One, um, yeah. Brazil, Mexico. They've always managed to work their way out of it because they were surrounded with stable economies. Mm-hmm. But with every country in the world on fiat money, they're all going to go over the cliff at the same time. Mm. And what do you do then? It's uh, the uh, allegory that I use in, in my book is uh, if your house catches on fire, you call the fire department, they can put out the fire. Right. Well, what do you do if the whole town's on fire, including the fire department? Then who do you call? Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. The net is yeah. heading for potentially a new dark ages because everything stops. Nobody can afford electricity. There's no electricity left in the world. How do you run mm-hmm. a household? without electricity, much less a country. Right. But hasn't the catalyst, hasn't the introduction of fiat currency separate from the gold standard also ushered in this industrial revolution and all these other innovations because of the accessibility of money? Accessibility of money works fine until you inflate it, until it inflates itself out of existence, which Bitcoin is certain to do because there's no substance behind it. And the temptation Mm -hmm. to turn the little handle and run off a few more is politically irresistible. That's always the way it is. Gold and silver, you can't do that with. It is fixed, concrete. Mm-hmm. You can't move it. You can't manufacture gold or silver. You can only find it and refine it. Right. Yeah, it's definitely something that's a finite resource on Earth. There's only X amount. You can't produce more. That's so it right. Makes sense. It's right. Beyond human influence. Beyond human human influence. Agreed. Well, I think that that's um. You know, that's it for right now, Ronald. I appreciate you coming on and sharing some more insights into your, your book, Counterfeit Trust, into your history and, and how you even got started into the technology space and to the creation of what you've been doing. Um, I think it's truly, truly fascinating and everyone should go and, and get a copy of your book. The Kickstarter campaign is live now currently. Um, and I appreciate you coming on. Thank you for doing for saying that. Yes, the Kickstarter is moving and we hope to get as many people on it as possible. And I do appreciate this opportunity you've given to me because I've been trying to get this information out to people for 60 years. (laughs) Nobody would pay any attention to it. Thank you so much. Of course.